OXO's Good Grips handle is unique. It's easy to hold and control no matter the hand. Now, it doesn't exactly win beauty pageants, but Karen Schnellwar, who heads up branding for OXO, thinks the handle's beauty is more than skin deep. And, and it's the kind of beauty that, you know, when you realize how beneficial it is and how great it feels in your hand, it grows on you. Because when you realize something is designed beautifully, it starts to look incredibly attractive. You could say the same thing for humans. If you love someone's personality, they're more and more and more attractive to you. Fall in love with your kitchen tools. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. By most accounts, Eliza Tibbetts had led a pretty colorful life. Born in Cincinnati in 1823, she had lived in a utopian community in Virginia, held regular seances in her home to contact the dead, and at one point had been married to a steamboat captain. In the 1860s, Eliza marched in Washington, D.C. for abolition and women's suffrage. She was considered somewhat of a trendsetter. Eliza modeled her style after England's Queen Victoria. The ringlets in her hair, high lace collars, the brooch, the whole package. In the 1870s, Eliza, now married to her third husband, Luther, moved from D.C. to Riverside, California, a small community about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. They looked for crops to grow. They planted a couple of fruit trees and changed the California orange industry forever. Eliza Tibbetts, mother of oranges, queen of Riverside, California. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Among California crops, citrus occupies one of the king spots. From many groves, these golden oranges to be packed and shipped to every part of the country and the world. No one knows where they'll wind up. You can bet they'll be both welcome and delicious. Truly a store of goodness and health. Our story begins about an hour east of L.A. Yellow and orange poppies dot the gorgeous green foothills leading to the town of Riverside. Meanwhile, a butterfly migration is moving through the region. All right, enough, California. We get it. You're beautiful. Just beyond these seemingly magical foothills lies California State Historic Citrus Park, an entire state park that's devoted to citrus. Megan Suster and Steve Marento-Turrill are historians who specialize in the history of California's oranges. Our reporter for the story, Laura Carlson, is a food historian, and she became immersed in the history of Riverside's orange industry and, of course, Eliza Tibbetts. So we sent her to check it out. Hi, are you Megan? Hi, I'm Laura. Oh, thank you. The park is basically one giant citrus grove with a small museum in the middle. The museum is surrounded with different kinds of citrus. There's oranges, lemons, kumquats, everything. It's a picture of serenity if it weren't for the roaring California highway standing right behind it. So these uh, groves right here are our educational groves. 
Um, there's like an orange next to a grapefruit, next to a lemon, next to a lime. So you'll get to really see the diversity across the different kinds of citrus. You know, there's this, the leaves are different sizes. The fruit obviously is different sizes and colors. Some are thorny, some are not as thorny. Um, so it's a really good opportunity um, to teach kids, especially like, you know, not everything. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other, right? Oranges, like most citrus, originated in Asia, but their journey to California came via Spain. During the days of Spanish colonization, missions brought in different crops in order to become self-sustainable. And then later, as people migrated westward for a chance to start at a new life, they looked to these crops as an opportunity. So the Riverside, California, is what was called a planned community. This is Tracy Cohn, curator of the University of California Riverside's Citrus Collection. There were people who signed up to move here from Midwest and I think New York, and they actually moved here with the idea that they were going to participate in agriculture, but the they didn't know what, and so they tried all sorts of different things. They tried to grow mulberry trees to develop a silkworm industry here. That didn't work out very well. But in 1847, which was before all this, um, there was this one guy who was in LA who was really entrepreneurial. He did all sorts of things, and his name was W. Woolskill. If there wasn't historical documentation to back up his existence, it would be hard to believe that William Wolfskill was a real person. Fantastical name aside, he's almost like a caricature of the American West during this period. He's the stuff that legends are made of, a real Paul Bunyan kind of guy. He was a rancher, a cowboy, a fur trapper, and he'd lived all over the Southwest. But then he gets to California. Now, this was the time of the gold rush during the 1840s, but Wolfskill didn't aim to prospect gold. He wanted to turn those miners into customers. So he buys acres of land, plants Valencia orange trees, and starts selling oranges to the miners for a buck apiece. And he established the first uh, commercial citrus grove, and that was around the time of uh, when the gold rush was going on and there were lots of people coming to California and there was a lot of need for food and especially people were very excited about the fresh fruit that you can grow in California. Now, these Valencia oranges are the foundation of the American orange juice industry and they were the perfect specimen. Lots of juicy flesh inside and a thin peel for easy juicing. But that thin peel also makes the Valencia very fragile. It bruises easily, and it can go bad fast. So storing and shipping were nearly impossible and prohibitively expensive. Someone needed to procure an orange that anyone, anywhere, at any time could enjoy. One that wouldn't cost an arm and a leg. Okay, so the United States Department of Agriculture, one of the things that they did was explore new different kinds of varieties of all sorts of things, not just citrus. But um, they sent explorers out, and one set went to Bahia, Brazil. And it was in Brazil that they found the Bahia Naval. And they had this thing that was called the Bahia Naval sent to Washington, D.C., where USDA was. 
Now, these Bahia navels, which were brought to Brazil in the 16th century by the Portuguese, they were rebranded as Washington navels. The orange industry considered them nearly perfect. They had a bright orange color, a sturdy peel to protect the flesh from bruising during shipping, and they were seedless. Plus, they had a unique marker, that little orange belly button. So that navel orange you grew up eating, the same one your mom probably sliced up for your youth soccer halftime snack, the Bahia was its great-great-grandparent. So the Bahias are brought to William Saunders, the head of experimental horticulture at the USDA in D.C. And Saunders realizes that he's holding the holy grail of oranges in his hand, and he sends the fruit to Florida, which at that time was the center of the American orange industry. So they sent it to Florida. And because Florida has a little bit more tropical climate than California, and citrus is really a tropical crop, but it didn't take off in Florida because it didn't have quite the same quality. This seemingly perfect orange, sweet, seedless, suitable for transport, it just couldn't thrive in Florida. And Saunders was flummoxed. But then... He thought of his old next-door neighbors that had left their D.C. lives to move to Riverside, California. Eliza and Luther Tibbetts had made the transcontinental train journey to make a new life. Eliza and Luther needed a new crop for their new California home, and Saunders wondered if the naval oranges could thrive in California. So around 1873, Saunders ships a few trees out west via train to the Tibbetts. Tracy from UC Riverside described the tree's daunting journey. When those trees came, were brought, sent from Washington, D.C., the Continental Railroad had just been finished, and it came across the United States to San Francisco, okay? So, and then it went, no, it's just a good story. Then it had to come from San Francisco down to L.A., and then Eliza and perhaps Luther took their cart their horse cart to L.A. It took them one day out and one day back to bring these two or three trees. The idea that there were three, that there was originally one tree that got trampled by a cow very early on, and two trees survived. And those two surviving trees, which the Tibbets planted in their front yard, became known as the parent Washington naval orange trees. And they launched most of California's orange industry. They were also the root of some very interesting Eliza Tibbetts mythology. So another one of the stories is that Eliza Tibbetts originally kept those two trees that survived alive by watering them with her dishwater. So, you know, that's what the stories that people tell in Riverside. And here's the thing. Neither Eliza nor Luther were known, really, for horticulture. This was most likely their first attempt at growing citrus, So no one's quite sure why Eliza used dishwater as part of her gardening regimen. But in any case, in the Mediterranean climate of cool winters and hot, dry summers, those navel trees thrived. Now think about that for a minute. Just imagine that you own the only trees in America that produce these perfect navel oranges. Now, personally, I would guard those trees with my life and wait for the dough to start rolling in. But the Tibbets were a bit less greedy. Neighbors began to ask for cuttings, and the Tibbets were more than happy to oblige. Megan, back at the Citrus State Historic Park, says 
that probably wasn't the smartest business decision. So for in the case of Eliza Tibbetts, you know, her neighbors noticed these trees and they were coming left and right to get cuttings or also called budwood to graft, you know, their own because they realized what a big deal this variety was going to be. And so then it it wasn't until a little bit later that her and her husband realized like, oh, shoot, we should be (laughs) (laughs) we should really be um, a little more intentional with how we're handing out these cuttings. But that's another story. So now it seemed like the whole neighborhood was growing navel oranges, and neighbors were entering the oranges into agricultural competitions and winning prizes. Navel oranges became a huge hit and were national news. And sadly, by the 1890s, Eliza and Luther had lost their riverside farm, which included those original navel trees. And they were pretty much out of the orange business altogether. But the naval industry continued to grow. Actually, that's not even accurate. The industry exploded. By 1910, naval oranges had become a national symbol for the California lifestyle. They were a little bit of sunny paradise that you could hold in your hand. There were over one million Washington naval trees growing in the United States, and every single one of those trees could be traced back to the two dishwater-fed trees in Eliza Tibbetts' front yard. Now, in the 1940s, Riverside Orange Crates were branded with Eliza's likeness, and the town even erected a statue of her that still stands today. It's no small statue. It's about 10 feet high, and it sits among statues of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Eliza appears young and content. Her eyes are closed and her arms are outstretched. She's twirling, frozen in time, almost like a Disney princess. Eliza is the unofficial queen of Riverside. So answer me this. How exactly did Eliza, a person who gave away cuttings of her trees, who lost her orange farm, end up with such gloried fame and a statue in the middle of Riverside, California? More on that after the break. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Quiz. And this week, my colleague Keith Dresser is actually in the studio with me, and we're talking almond meal, which is appropriate because I think Keith was one of the original Almond Brothers. Hey, Keith, how you doing? Great, yeah. I was the original Ramblin' Man. (laughs) Okay. All right, we got to get a little serious. So, as a general rule, what percentage of the all-purpose flour can you sub out for almond flour in baking recipes? Is it A, 50%, B, 46%, or C, 25%? Boy, I don't really know. Um, We're talking about a general rule here, right? So I I would imagine if you get up towards the 50%, that might impact the texture of your baked goods. So I'm going to go with 25%. I love how much thought you put into it. And it works for you. You got it right. Congratulations. (laughs) You can replace 25% of the all-purpose flour in your baking recipes with almond flour to add a wonderful texture and flavor while reducing the total carbohydrate count. Learn more at bobsredmill.com. You know when you're cooking something like chicken or fish and you need to wash your hands, but you don't want to touch the faucet because then you got to clean the faucet? Kohler has thought of this. Their faucets have something called response touchless technology. You simply wave your hand or a utensil through the sensor window to turn it on and off like magic. 
It's really convenient and hygienic because it reduces the chances of spreading germs around the kitchen. You and your family are going to be nice and safe. The touchless sensor is on the underside of the spout and turns on and off in 20 milliseconds. Perfect if you don't have a second to spare. And if you forget to turn it off, the faucet's going to shut itself off after four minutes. No batteries are necessary. It connects to your AC power. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. A good tool can make experimenting in the kitchen fun. That's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. It takes sous vide cooking to the next level. I asked my test kitchen colleagues what they do with theirs. I actually sous vide sous vide a turkey once. I think vegetables can really benefit from it too. So you can also sous vide starburst candy and you can like arrange the color, sous vide it, and then they all kind of melt into one another and you can make jewelry with it. I actually have a sous vide starburst necklace at my desk. Jewel, perfect starburst necklaces every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. Before the break, we were talking about the serendipitous series of events that led to the development of the California orange industry. But how did two dishwater-fed trees and a riverside front yard launch an entire industry? Our reporter for the story, Laura Carlson, laid her eyes on the famous Washington Naval Oranges while touring Riverside Citrus State Historic Park. So these three right here are the, the famous Washington Naval Orange. <laughs> Here they are. You see the fireworks going on? Here, you can pick a famous Washington naval orange off the tree. This might be a moment I can't turn down. Mm. Mm. Okay. So you'll just want to squeeze the, pinch the stem between one hand and then just sort of twist. Okay. Because you don't want to break the skin of the fruit because then that makes it go bad quicker. So, so just sort of twist, yeah, and then it should just pop off at some point. There we go. Oh my goodness! There you go. It, it, it's a delightful. Does it, feel it does. It feels it weighty with history. Naval oranges were changing the face of America's orange industry. Oranges had largely been grown just for juicing and not for eating up to this point. But growers needed to get the word out about navels to the rest of the country. And one industry that was very interested both in creating a nationwide demand for the fruit as well as attracting people to move to California to grow their own? The railroads. The same railroads that brought Eliza and Luther Tibbetts to California and later brought those original naval trees to the Tibbetts. Railroads were a big deal during this era. Remember, they were the only means of long-haul transport for anything, including oranges. But the railroads also pushed an expensive campaign to get travelers to make the journey to California to see this orange-growing paradise for themselves. In the late 1880s, the Southern Pacific Railroad organized traveling shows to the Midwest and the East Coast. They sent 73,000 railroad cars full of California fruits and flowers to Chicago for the 1893 World's Fair. There was even a California Day at the fair where every attendee, around 230,000 people, was given 
a free California orange. And that campaign was a success. By 1899, Southern California was shipping about 6 million boxes of oranges a year. Here's Megan and Steve again from the Citrus State Historic Park talking about how important the navel was in representing these California dreams. It's beautiful. It's easy to peel. It's, you know, the land of sunshine and opportunity. So this is exemplifies that. Um, it holds really well on the tree and in the packing crate. Um, and this is really was a table fruit. So it was something that they could pick, they could pack, they could ship it in the refrigerated rail cars and it would really last. And then people were just really happy with it when they received it. Like it was a, often a gift in Christmas stockings, you know. I think there was a big support for it across the country. Early packing processes involved wrapping the fruit and including a label on it so that it wasn't just an ordinary piece of produce. It was, in fact, a gem, uh, something to covet, an event to get this thing. And especially if you're um, in the eastern part of the United States in the cold winter months, to have this type of fruit had a, a certain uh, exotic quality to it, or, or it, it was a big deal, so mm-hmm. to speak, and especially oranges were garnering um, around a dollar mm-hmm. a piece. Now, a dollar around 1890 would mean somewhere around 27, maybe even $30 in today's money. So to give an orange out to every person at the World's Fair, I would call that a pretty generous gesture. Now, although William Saunders had sent the Tibbets the naval orange trees as part of his job at the USDA back in the 1870s, nothing official had really come of it. Oranges weren't a big business. But now that they were a million-dollar industry, well, the USDA started to take an interest. And so did local folks. Orange growers in Southern California formed an organization called the California Fruit Growers Exchange. They asked the government for support in order to achieve better harvests or deter pests and disease. Here's Dr. Tracy Kahn again from UC Riverside. The USDA sent a number of scientists out at one point to figure out how to ship citrus from Southern California across the nation. So they did all these experiments, and the guy that owned the Mission Inn put them up at the Mission Inn so that they could do their research. And they developed all sorts of clippers and techniques to clip the citrus so that it didn't get uh, nicked, so that fungus wouldn't grow on it. And they then figured out refrigerator cars for railroad trucks that actually then expanded citrus coming from California across the nation. The USDA wasn't just interested in developing specialty clippers. In the early 1900s, they founded an experiment station to study Southern California citrus. It served as a base where scientists could work on research and develop new and better varieties. All the towns in the area growing citrus at that time wanted to be the home of that experiment station. And they looked at all different kinds of locations in Southern California. So L.A., Pomona, Pasadena, Orange County. And so there were people who were part of Riverside Community that went up and advocated to the University of California and to the legislature, which was allocating the money for the experiment station, to actually keep it in Riverside. And they were successful. And when it happened, there were like these big old churches downtown Riverside that you may have seen and the Mission Inn. The churches actually rang their bells and the press enterprise which is the newspaper that still exists in the Riverside and in Southern California, 
published a huge headline that says, Riverside Winds Experiment Station. This win was a great honor for Riverside. And it's this time when the mythology of Riverside, those stories about Luther and particularly Eliza, the parent naval orange trees, they all start getting used to promote the town and its oranges. In 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt came and personally transplanted the Tibbetts trees to downtown Riverside so more folks could view them. In the 1920s, the Daughters of the American Revolution honored those parent trees with a plaque proclaiming Eliza as the official mother of the California citrus industry. In 1932, the trees became designated as a California historic landmark. And in 1933, on the 60th anniversary of those trees arriving in Riverside, the town held a pageant featuring Eliza's devotion to those very trees. Today, some folks in Riverside think all of this Eliza Tibbetts lore is just a little overblown, especially in light of her actual contribution to an industry that developed long after she was gone. Her husband, Luther, who was arguably an equal partner, gets no such statue, nor does William Saunders, the man who had the idea to ship the naval trees to the Tibbetts in the first place. Here's Megan again. But no, she definitely is a huge part still of uh, the identity of the city, like I said. Um, but she sort of is frozen in that moment. Like, we have the one picture of her, and she watered the trees with her dishwater, oh, and that's yeah. kind of what the story is. Perhaps it was Eliza's curated self-image that led to her legend. She quite obviously was taken with the stylings of Britain's Queen Victoria. Eliza began to dress and groom herself to look strikingly similar to the monarch, and that queenly image became synonymous with marketing for the California orange industry. Dr. Kathy Judas, a history professor at UC Riverside, notes how the orange industry used this Eliza Victoria connection for their packaging, even long after Eliza's lifetime. She very purposely fashioned herself to look like Queen Victoria. And so it adds to the layers of the story in a fantastic way. And so her image becomes part of a citrus crate label for Victoria packing. She exemplifies the ways in which the region is actually built as a kind of empire. And for most of the 20th century, Southern California, especially around Riverside, becomes known as the Inland Empire, thanks to the orange industry. And these images of Eliza and the endless groves of citrus is used as advertising for the California lifestyle. California is one of the few states with sufficient diversity of natural resources to sustain itself as an isolated empire if necessary. It's now 2019, and in Riverside, the tale of Eliza's reign is beginning to fade. She's no longer the mother or queen of citrus, but is more of a tall tale that people tell each other. Her statue, which stands next to the landmark Mission Inn Hotel, feels a little neglected. It's shaded and a little hidden by trees. And the figured, twirling young woman looks absolutely nothing like her Victorian image. You'll have to see if you recognize her because it it doesn't really quite look like her, but... um, an artist rendition, but no, she was a she is definitely a really big figure still in sort of the identity of the city. Even the parent naval orange trees that Teddy Roosevelt transplanted to the middle of Riverside seem just out of reach. 
And that's because they are. They're wedged into a small gated plot in the middle of a traffic intersection, and you've got to peek between metal bars to see them. But soon, you won't be able to see them at all. A large tent has been erected over those trees to protect them from citrus greening disease, which is currently the biggest threat to citrus in the entire world. It's caused by an insect known as the Asian citrus psyllid, which carries a bacteria that affects citrus trees upon contact. The trees start producing green, bitter-tasting fruit, and most trees that develop the disease will die within a few years. Right now, there is no cure. Here's Tracy Conigan speaking about the disease at a conference in Riverside. It was initially found in China, but it has been moving around the world. Just as we've been moving germplasm around the world, we've been moving diseases as well. Initially in the United States, it was first came to Florida, and Florida has been absolutely devastated by this disease. Um, the juice industry has been highly affected by this disease. Right now, citrus greening disease is a major part of the research happening at UC Riverside's citrus variety collection. But other facets of their research are decidedly less gloomy. The UCR also works with companies on things like orange soda flavorings or citrus-based perfumes. They've also started working on mixology and recently welcomed some of the country's top bartenders to become inspired by their vast citrus collection. That was really, really cool because they, you know, they cut off the van and they're like, they've got, we are handing them citrus, but they have like their cell phone in one hand and they had citrus in the other and they were eating it and they were tweeting. So I was like, oh no, this might not be such a good thing because I was thinking we were going to get, they were going to tell like too many people too fast. Mm -hmm. And you'd be swarmed with bartenders. Swarmed with bartenders. (laughs) You have to keep away like a big fence emerges because you have to keep the bartenders. (laughs) And at the W. Wolfskill Bar in Riverside, the bar, of course, named after the first commercial citrus grower, William Wolfskill, they use some of the citrus variety collection's most rare types of lemons, limes, and oranges in their beverages. Their head chef, Larry Ty, says it's like being a kid in a candy store. I grew up in Riverside, and I always knew of UCR and the Citrus Variety Collection. And uh, I just reached out to Tracy Kahn, and right away it, it clicked with us. And four years later, we go into the citrus fields with her, and it feels like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where you're just picking stuff from trees, and it one tastes like a mango, one tastes like bitter melon. Szechuan peppercorn comes out of one. It's just like mind-blowing what, what's out there, and it's been fun to try to utilize. So, surely, there's at least one cocktail that's centered around Riverside's own Washington Naval, right? Nope. It turns out that that particular orange just isn't built for beverages. That's a very good fruit as a orange juice, and for that application, it works well, but in terms of flavor, like, levels... I would say Washington Naval would be around a base level five, whereas you can get something out there in the Mandarin variety or Satsumas that ratchet up those flavors of a Naval up to an eight or a nine. And that's the kind of fun stuff for us where we can showcase that weird stuff that tastes like a Naval orange, but times 10 almost. 
And you won't find any Eliza Tibbetts cocktail on the menu either. But somehow that seems fitting for a woman who fashioned herself after Queen Victoria. That dame was known to prefer a glass of straight whiskey anyway. Special thanks to Laura Carlson, who produced and reported this episode. Now, Laura hosts and produces her own podcast called The Feast. And if you love this kind of deep dive into the history of the foods that you eat, you should really check out her show. She's explored all kinds of great stories at the intersection of food and history, like the sandwich that was smuggled into space in the 1960s, King Midas's recipe for beer, and why Thomas Jefferson received a 1,200-pound wheel of cheddar cheese for his presidential inauguration. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Associate producer, Caroline Rickard. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmsted. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop looks absolutely nothing like Queen Victoria, but he is Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler's Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you're curious to see that statue of Eliza Tibbetts, the parent naval orange trees, and other photos from Laura's trip to Riverside, then be sure to check out our website, www.americastestkitchen.com proof. We've posted them there for you. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or write a review because it really helps other people find the show. <laughs>